Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. We got power. Can you hear me? All right. You can hear that. We're just not going to use that, okay? Uh, <clears throat> Christopher J. Holsey, our worship pastor, is uh, headed to vacation today. I text him this morning uh, at the end of as Margaret and I were rehearsing Living Hope, and I said, Christopher, darn you for putting that in a key that's so high, because I squeak out at the end of that song every time, and he responded back, that's job security, and I said, yes, yes it is, and so is my microphone, obviously. All right, if, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at verse 17. We're going to be, I think, preaching a, a message today that uh, you don't hear a whole lot. Um, and we're going to be talking about the idea of coveting. Okay, so Exodus 20, 17, this is what it says. Are you with me? says in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, uh, we're going to really answer just a few questions today. What is coveting? How do we do it? Um, what is the seriousness of it? Why is there a command about it? And then how do we kind of guard ourselves and combat covetousness in our lives? Those are the four questions that we're going to answer today. And so uh, if you'd like to take notes, uh, hopefully this will be beneficial. So the first thing that we're going to do is say, what is coveting? Okay, we've got to answer that question because that might be a new word. Most of us don't use the word coveting in a, a daily language that we, uh, or conversation that we have. Uh, our culture does, definitely does not talk about the idea of coveting things. Um, and so what is it? So the word covet, uh, according to the dictionary, says to wish, long, or crave for something that belongs to another person. To wish, long, or crave for something that belongs to another person. Now, the Hebrew word here is chamad, all right? So you got to put a ch at the beginning of it. You ready to try it with me? Okay? Or you're on three. It's chamad. One, two, three, chamad. Very great, you Hebrew scholars this morning. Um, chamad, and this is what it means, to desire, to take pleasure in, to delight in something that belongs to another. 
Now, I want you to go way back in the Bible. Remember with me, back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Isn't this exactly what Eve did in the garden? Eve did this. It all goes back right there in the garden. Coveting started. She looked, longed for, gazed at, delighted in something that was not for her. She looked upon the forbidden tree, and it says that she saw that it was delight to the eyes, it was good for food, and it was desired to make one wise, and so she took of it. But long before she ever took of it, she began to covet something that did not belong to her. And so this idea of coveting, 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 16, says it's this, it's the lust of the eye, the lust of the eye. Now, most of us, when we think about lust, we only think about it in regards to some kind of sexual nature, but the Scriptures say that coveting is the lust of the eye. Now, and, and the lust, that lust of the eye for Eve turned into a desire in her heart, which turned into an action in her body, which went all kinds of bad for you and for me. Now, coveting also is when we begin in our hearts to question God's goodness. Now, stop for a second. Don't you remember that was what the, the enemy did in the garden? It got her to question God's word. Did God really say? Did God really say? And surely he didn't mean you'd die. Surely God loves you more than that. Are you with me? And we do that. We covet something that doesn't belong to us. And when we don't have it, we begin to question, well, if God really loved me, then he would give me what I want to be happy. Does that sound like our culture? It also sounds like the church. The church is just as guilty as our culture is. Why? Because we don't talk about coveting. Because we think about the here and now when God's Word says, don't walk by sight, but walk by what? Faith. Looking to the unseen things, not the things that you can see. Walk by faith. So now, when we question God's goodness, we elevate things, our love of things, we love these things that God gives us to enjoy, but we end up elevating the love of those things. I wish I had three hands right now because I would use my other hand to do something else. Above the love of God. We elevate the love of things above the love of God, and this is problematic in us. Now, the Scripture is full of examples of covetousness that might or might not be called covetousness. But here they are. Do you remember um, in the book of Exodus, how uh, Achan coveted the plunder of Jericho and when God had given strict orders to leave it alone. Do you remember Achan's sin? He said, I saw the gold. I saw the treasure. I wanted it. And he coveted it. Moses' sister, Miriam, coveted the authority of Moses and Aaron. Do you remember that? And she wanted that authority that did not belong to her, but God had given to Moses and Aaron. She coveted it. She longed for it. She questioned, she questioned God, and, oh man, she paid for that. David, do you remember David coveted Bathsheba? And that um, 
led him to take her as his own and to kill her husband to cover it up. This is the idea of coveting. Amnon, Amnon, uh, uh, Amnon coveted, coveted his half-sister Tamar. Judas coveted money that was in the purse. I mean, all through the Scriptures, people long for, look for, crave things that they ought not to crave. And in the book of Exodus, just a few chapters before where we are, there were the graves of craving. The graves of craving. They longed for something that God had not given them. God gave them the desires of their heart, and it led to their own demise. So, it is the desire for someone or something that God has not given us. So, that's what coveting is in the Scripture. How do we covet? How do we covet? Because let's just, I, I need you to just hear me out. This sermon has been entirely convicting to me. I, I wish that I could stand up here this morning and say, guys, I've got this under wraps. Like I, this one, I'm a champion of. I, I Just follow my example because I am doing this flawlessly. But um, if I can just confess to you today that I struggle with coveting. Coveting. Longing for something that God has not given me. And I think we, if we would admit it this morning, that we struggle with this idea of coveting in, to such a great degree. See, in our day and age, coveting is a commandment and sin that we really ignore in the church. We don't talk about it in our culture. In fact, not only do we ignore it, but it seems as though our culture has normalized the sin of covetousness normalized it. It's okay to look and long for and want something that's not your own. Now, we covet other people's lives. We do that. Uh, we, whether it's their spouse that seems to be so good from the outside, or we cover their possessions, whatever they have, the house, car, boat, uh, mountain, house, you know, I don't know what it is, but you covet their possessions. We covet their vacations. Uh, we covet their professions. We sometimes covet their families. Uh, it's funny. It's funny how uh, everybody's family looks more put together than yours until you're on the inside of it. Are you with me? Come on, parents. Didn't you look at other families' children when you were raising your children and go, how do they just seem to have it all together? I've got a two-week-old ketchup stain on me, right? They just seem to have it all together. But, but in fact, they, they don't. They're just struggling along the road just like you and I are. So we covet. We covet other people's relationships, the relationships they have with their spouses or their children or, or, or with, with friends. We, we pastors, we pastors are bad at this. We covet too. Here's how. Every Sunday afternoon and Monday morning, I wake up and uh, I look on Facebook and pastors will share about, oh man, we had just such a great day on Sunday. We had 497,000 people trust Christ today at our church. And I go, why, Lord? Why not us? We covet. We look at other people's ministries and other pastors' churches that, that God has given to them to shepherd, when in fact God has given me a church to shepherd. And social media is, I mentioned that, but social media has really taught us how to be great coveters. Really good at it. 
We sure are. We'll look at somebody's Facebook page, and man, they are like St. Paul, right, on Facebook. And you go, man, if I could just have their spirituality or their relationship with Jesus, they're showing you on Facebook, but in fact, their heart is sometimes far from God. You honor me with your Facebook account while your heart is far from me. I think it's in there, right? It's in the book. And we scroll through Facebook, and we look at edited, filtered pictures where they have edited out all of the flaws, and we look at their perfect lives, and we long for, crave those things, those lives that God has not given to us. And we wonder to ourselves and to God at times, why are we not as blessed as they are? This is coveting. Now, most of us would call this any day of the week, but the Bible calls this the sin of covetousness. And man, social media has just been a tool that the enemy has used to attack God's children with this horrible idea. And so, the seriousness of it. Why is it so serious? I want you to to take a look for just a moment uh, at your scriptures in Exodus chapter 20, and I want you to look at, remember, there are two tables of the law, right? The first four are all pointed to who? God, right? And this, the last six are all this way, okay? So we've got one through four, which are Godward, and five through ten, which are our relationship between one person to another person. And so what I want you to see in this is that why did I skip from commandment number five, which is where we were a couple weeks ago before our 150 celebration, to commandment number 10? Why, why didn't I go five, six? I want you to see this because I believe that coveting undergirds commands six through nine. And follow me for a second. Look at it. Now, look at verse 13. I don't have this on the screen, so you're going to have to open your Bible uh, and look at it with me. Verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15 says, you shall not steal. Verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So you, you covet someone who is not your spouse, so you commit adultery. You covet someone else's things, so you steal. You covet what belongs to another, so you fight and you murder. I want you to read James chapter 4 with me. James sums this up really well for us. In James 4, 1 through 4, he says, What causes quarrels among you, or, and what causes fights among you? It's, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you do what, church? Murder. You covet. He even uses the word. And cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Then he goes on in verse 3, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This idea of passions is not a good kind of passions, but the ungodly kind of passion. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you see how James 
the brother of Jesus makes this connection between coveting and fighting and murdering and adultery and stealing. Do you see how he's making this connection for us today in the Word? It's coveting. The reason why it's so serious is because when we don't have our hearts, the passions and desires and cravings of our heart under control, it will lead to all kinds of sin. You covet another person's life, career, passions, possessions, so you often can lie to make your way to the top, to cover your backside so you look better. It is the gateway sin for many others. There's an um, old dead theologian named William Barclay, and he says this, I think we've got it on the screen. Covetousness is therefore a sin with a very wide range. If it's the desire to money, for money, it leads to theft. If it's the desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it's the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it's the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. This idea of covetousness, when we don't guard our hearts against covetousness, man, it'll... It will do some damage to us in our souls. The second thing is it does lead to an unhealthy soul. Coveting leads to an unhealthy soul. Here's what I mean by that. When you covet something that belongs to another, that sin, the sin of covetousness, um, longing and looking at something which belongs to another will lead to a discontentment in our hearts. Have you ever had that kind of discontentment with your life because you're looking at somebody else's life who seems to have it all together? Church, you with me out there this morning? Has that, have you ever struggled with that? Discontentment. And now discontentment, if not dealt with, it will often lead to bitterness. When I have discontentment in my heart because of the current circumstances of my life or the things that I feel like I don't have because I've coveted somebody else's things, when I have discontentment and it's not dealt with, it leads to bitterness. And that bitterness is most often directed at God. Anxiety. Tim Keller says it like this. Anxiety is the fear that God will get it wrong. Bitterness is the belief that he did. Anxiety is the fear that God will get it wrong. Bitterness is the belief that he did. And so here's what we say about God to God when we covet somebody else's things, are discontented in our heart, have bitterness in our heart toward him, and we question his goodness. We believe that the, the author of all things, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, omniscient one got it wrong when it came to me. Are you with me? Man, isn't that dangerous? Now listen, we're going to talk about this some more in the weeks to come, but this is one of the issues that our culture deals with when it comes to gender identity. Because our culture, some of our culture feels like that God got it wrong when it came to me. He messed up when he created me because I'm longing for something, craving something that does not belong to me. I begin to question God's goodness. I get discontented with who he made me to be. And then I get 
bitter, and so I take my life and my identity into my own hands, and I become whoever I want to be, and then I justify it by saying, if God really loved me, He would want me to be happy. Are you with me? Do you see the sin of covetousness is not just something that leads to longing, being, being wanting something that's not your own? Oh, this sin is such a horrible sin. As we scroll on our Facebook in the morning, we covet, we long for things that God has not given us. We question Him. Why haven't you given this to me? And why don't I have the family finances, success, etc., like they do? And we doubt God's goodness. Ray Pritchard says it this way. He said, and I think we've got it. I'll read the first part that you don't have, and then I want you to focus on this part. He says, coveting is nothing more or less than an attempt to improve upon God. To improve upon God. The covetous man moans and groans because he believes that he has been treated unfairly. When all the goodies were passed out, he got nothing but crumbs. Now listen to me. Follow this with me. The covetous man doubts God's wisdom, God's goodness, God's justice, God's timing, and ultimately God's love. Coveting is a terrible sin because it is an attack on God himself. Those who covet are saying, God, you have not taken care of me. And they're blaming God for his failure to meet their needs. Man, we should guard our hearts from this idea of coveting, shouldn't we? And whether it's coveting in our relationships or coveting in material possessions or coveting when we think about churches like pastors sometimes do, we, the grass, what's it saying? The grass is always greener on the other side. You just don't know that it's over a septic tank, right? Isn't this what the prodigal son did? He longed for the father's possessions. They weren't his yet. But he wanted what did not yet belong to him. He wanted this idea of freedom from the tyranny of my father. And so he struck out on his own, took all of his father's inheritance, and he went and squandered it on reckless living. Why? Because he thought that that, that would be what I've been missing my whole life. My father's been holding out on me. And if he loved me, he would want me to be happy. What did he find out? That all the money, all the women, all the parties would not succeed in satisfying his soul. And the beautiful story of the prodigal son is he realizes his brokenness in the midst of the pigsty. And he runs back to the father. And he says, my, my father's servants live better than I do. My father actually does take care of his servants better than I'm currently living in my freedom. He was coveting something, and that coveting led to all kinds of other sin in his life. And all that bitterness will steal the joy that God has intended for you. Do you, do you struggle with coveting? It's only going to steal your joy. 
and it's so easy just to give into it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. It's such a deceptive sin. All it's going to do, though, is steal the joy that God has intended for his children. Coveting leads to the enslavement of our souls. And it, it puts the greatest desire on the created thing rather than the creator. Okay, the last, last reason it's so serious is because it breaks the first two commandments. Coveting breaks the first two commandments. Here's how I know that. In Ephesians chapter 5 and in Colossians chapter 3, it says it just like this. Ephesians 5, 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater. Not my words, but Paul's. He says, covetousness is idolatry. He says, this person, that everyone who is any of these things has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. So we normalize covetousness while God calls it idolatry. And God says that anyone who continues in this unrepentant sin has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. When was the last time you thought about coveting that way? Colossians 3 verse 5 says it this way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Did you hear him? He says, you don't need to, to dabble with it. You don't need to play with this sin. You need to put it to death. He says, put it to death. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why should we put them to death, Paul? Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God does not play with those who commit the sin of idolatry by longing for things more than longing for Him, the Creator of all things. The generation under, the generations under us, and for some of you that might be a number of generations, but the generations under us are growing up attached to one of these things. And one of these things is teaching us to covet and to covet well. And God calls it idolatry. Not only does he call it idolatry, but he says, because of this, the wrath of God is coming, and for the one who persists in this sin, is unrepentant of this sin, there is no place in the kingdom of heaven for that person. One church reformer says it this way. He said, wherever something holds dominion in the heart, God has lost his authority. So it's idolatry. Breaks the first and second commandment. So why did I go from number five to number ten? Because the, the sin of covetousness will often break many of the others. Now, how do we combat it? Because Paul said to combat it, to put it to death. Now look at me. Lean in. How many of you, and I think I've used this illustration before, how many of you have ever watched the show on TV, When Wild Animals Attack? Right? Have you ever seen that show? Um, there's a guy swimming uh, with a shark that's, you know, this monstrous great white shark, and he decides that he's going to feed this great white or whatever kind of shark it is, and then he's going he's gonna to pet this shark. 
Have you ever seen how that goes for them? It, it doesn't go so well. Sooner rather than later, the, the shark says to the person in the wetsuit, you look like the thing that I eat in the wild, like a seal or something. And so, nom, nom, nom. I'm gonna, uh, and, and they attack. A lion, right? Have you seen these people? They're, they're on a safari or they're, they're, they're kind of um, familiar with this lion that might be in captivity. And they're, they're, they're hugging this lion. They're petting this lion and stroking this lion like it's a kitten, Right? And then all of a sudden, the lion, by instinct, turns on them and overpowers them and mauls them and sometimes kills them. And we go, I don't know what happened. I do. You're playing with something that is not meant to be played with. And covetousness is God's people playing with something that ought not to be played with. We dabble a little. And sooner than later, we find out that it has mastery over us. And that we are mauled up, chewed up. We got bite marks, and part of our leg is missing. And we go, I don't know what happened. Paul says, put it to death. Put sin to death, or it's going to put you to death. Be busy killing sin, or sin will be busy killing you. He says, put it to this. So how do we combat it, church family? Just a few words, real fast. Number one, trust. Trust. You need to trust the gospel. You need to trust the gospel that God, through Christ, can forgive you and our covetous hearts. Trust the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to pay the full penalty of your sin, to bear the the wrath of God that is coming for the unholy, unrighteous, filthy, wicked sins of the world, that Jesus died to bear the wrath that's coming upon the, the children of man. Jesus died to bear that wrath and to grant you a place to give you an inheritance in God's possession. Trust the gospel. When? Many of us think we trust the gospel. I did that a long time ago when I was six years old or eight years old, back at vacation, Bible school or youth group when I was 12. You trust the gospel every day, moment by moment. You wake, you trust the gospel. You eat lunch, you trust the gospel. You sin in the afternoon, you trust the gospel. You lay your head down on your pillow trusting the gospel. We're that needy of the gospel. We're so sinful that sometimes we don't even know we're sinning. Amen? We're that good at it. And the gospel, we need to trust it. And the gospel doesn't just forgive us so that we can continue on. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but it's also the power of God for redemption. That it sets us free from slavery. And now we're not slaves to sin, but we are freed in Christ so that we can submit ourselves to God as slaves and instruments of righteousness. So we trust the gospel. Second, we trust that God is good. So we trust the gospel. We trust that God is good. I told our middle schoolers in chapel uh, a couple weeks ago that when God made you, he didn't make junk. God never created somebody and said, whoops. Like his pen slipped, like he dropped the paintbrush, 
God never created something and said, well, I didn't have enough time to spend on that one. He did not mess up when he created your life. He has provided for your needs and trust that he will continue to. Trust that God loves you and he is taking care of you. Trust the gospel and trust God. Second, contentment. The second big word is contentment. The the idea of contentment is the idea of being satisfied with things as they are. Isn't that hard? Now, listen to me. Contentment does not mean that we Christians get to be lazy. Contentment and laziness are not the same thing. God is not opposed to effort. Dallas Willard says that God is not opposed to effort but to earning. So he wants his people to work hard, to strive, to struggle, And we earn a living by the sweat of our brow because of the curse. God is not opposed to working diligently, but what God wants you to do is to be content with what you have. Work hard to try to change your circumstances, but don't do it outside of God's will. Now, how many of you have ever said, if I just had this much, then I'd be happy. If I had this much in this account, if I had this much set back, then I would have enough. How many of you ever said that? Yeah. And you know what happens? You get that much in that account and you go, well, if I had just had a little bit more. Contentment has nothing to do with an amount. And if you're looking to an amount for contentment, you will always long for something that you don't have. It will never be full enough. Contentment has nothing to do with an amount. It comes from finding contentment, not in things, but in a person. Paul says it this way in in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned how to be content, whether I have a little or whether I have a lot. I've learned to be content. And then he quotes this famous passage that we often take out of context. He says, whether I have little, whether I have a lot, I've learned to be content. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The the context of that passage has nothing to do with leaping a small building, jumping walls, you know, healing people. It has to do with contentment. And Paul says, I've learned contentment through Christ. Christ's strength enables me to be content with the way things are. Have you learned the, the gift of contentment? Contentment and coveting cannot coexist. Contentment and coveting cannot live in the same house. One will kill the other. Always. So either coveting is going to put contentment to death or contentment is going to put coveting to death. But one of those things is going to happen. Contentment. Third word, gratitude. Gratitude. Stop longing for what you don't have. Just be thankful for what you do. It's almost Thanksgiving. We should be the most thankful people on planet Earth 12 months out of the year. Amen? God's church God's people should be the most thankful people. We should have the biggest hearts of gratitude of all the people on planet Earth, but oftentimes we're the stankiest people. We got the, the, 
the heart that just seems to grumble about everything. And the Bible says that gratitude will push back this idea of covetousness. Do you remember the song that we sing? Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand. What? Hath provided. Why? Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Be gra- grateful. Fourth, delight. Learn to delight in God. All through the Bible is a big story of mankind delighting in stuff rather than God. They're using God to get the stuff. And so, in other words, they're being idolaters. And Romans 1 says that they that God turned them over because of the worship of the creation, not the creator. But God has created you and me to be rational people, to have a relationship with him that we were created to in the garden, delight in God. Delight in him. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he'll give you the desire of your heart. Why? Because he's going to change your heart. When I delight in God, all the other delights and longings will take their proper place. Delighting in something, longing for something, craving for something is not wrong when Jesus is my first delight, my greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Are you with me? Delight in him. Find enjoyment in him, satisfaction in him. Have you read the book of Ecclesiastes? What a sad book it seems to be. But what the author says is, I tried money. It didn't work. I tried women. That was just trouble. I tried work, and that was all right. I, I tried wisdom, but wisdom's fleeting. But God is the only one who satisfies. It's the book of Ecclesiastes right there. Be satisfied in what is eternal, in what is eternal. And Paul says that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let's be grateful. Let's be content with spiritual blessings. Let's be content. Charles Spurgeon says, the more of heaven there is in our lives, the less we shall covet. And so what we need to do is set our minds on things above where Christ is. Why? Because the more we fill our souls with heaven, the less we'll want to fill our soul with stuff. Last, generosity. Generosity. <clears throat> we talked about this just a few weeks ago, but you, you might come to church today and you say, oh, here he goes. Pastor's going to talk about giving. Like, like the church just always wants something from me. And I want you to understand that generosity is not because the church wants something from you, but rather that God wants something for you. Generosity is one of God's gifts to mankind to help set them free from the idolatry of stuff. The chains that sometimes we think that we own things and the things own us. And generosity is a tool that God uses to set us free from that. 
And so if you're not giving, I, I promise you something. If you're not being generous, I promise you something that you will struggle with contentment and coveting far more than the generous person will. It's the ways God designed it. And I don't care if you give to this church. Give to God's church, the one that you're a part of. If you're not a part of our church, find a church, and if it's ours, praise the Lord. We'd love to have you come be a part of God's family here. But when you do, learn to be generous. It'll set you free. So as we turn and close, how do I apply this? Number one, in what ways do I need God's forgiveness? In what ways have I doubted God's goodness? And if you can answer number two before you can answer number one, now you know how to answer number one. And what steps do I need to take today to combat covetousness? Remember, generosity, delight, gratitude, contentment, and trust. What, what's one of those steps that you might need to take today? Would you stand with me? Stretch it out. Wake up. This is not the seventh inning stretch. We're, we're in the home stretch right here. But in this moment, God is among us. God is speaking to some of us today. And let us not miss an opportunity to meet with the Lord and to deal with him. And, and maybe to say, Father, forgive me because I have questioned you. Your goodness, your faithfulness, your generosity, your plan for me. I have questioned you. Father, forgive me. Maybe today is the day where you need to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. You feel this tightness in your chest. You feel like your heart is beating out of your chest. And I just promise you, that is the knuckles of a holy God knocking on the door of your heart. Deal with them this morning. Be saved. Take a step. Repent of the sin of covetousness. And pray for the strength that comes through Christ. Would you bow with me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Maybe today you're here and it's your first time here and you say, Pastor, I, I want to be saved. I need Jesus. If that's you, wherever you are, it's just me looking at you. Would you slide your hand up and say, Pastor, I need Jesus. I want to be saved today. Amen. For the rest of us. Father, come and work. As we sing, come and work. Come and teach us. Come and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to have...